I apologise for... This is the first time I've ever used a headset mic, so I don't know what to do with my hands because I'm usually standing like this. So I apologise if I do some hand movements. Um, I don't know what to do with them. They might end up in my pockets or who knows what's going to happen. But yeah, we'll see how we go. All right. Welcome. Welcome to Refresh. It's great to have you all here. Um, we've been going for a little while now and it, I was joking to Neil this morning saying that you know it's church when people start having set seats. So um, just keep that in mind maybe for next week and uh, move around a little bit, that'd be good. Um, last night I was sitting at the table, don't know what to do with my hands, I was, si- <laughs> I was sitting at the table and I was typing away on the laptop as you do when you're writing a sermon or something like that. And um, the rain started coming down. I thought, yes, tomorrow's going to be a nice day. It's going to be fresh in the morning. It's going to be awesome. And all it did was create more humidity. But we needed the rain, and that was awesome. So that's great. Um, Anyone know who Damien Fleming is? A couple of people here and there. Damien Fleming was one of Australia's greatest swing bowlers in the Dominators cricket team. Now, the Dominators, the reason why they're called the Dominators is because they did dominate world cricket from a period of time to a period of time. They won something like 17 test matches straight. That's pretty good. That's why we were and we're going to be world number one again. Um, Damien Fleming, uh, as I said, he was Australia's, one of Australia's number one swing bowlers, not just fastball or whatever else. He was able to bend the ball from stump to stump, which means in cricket you've got three stumps. You've got leg stump, middle stump and off stump. He was able to take it from leg stump to off stump, so he's able to move it about that far, roughly, and that's just swinging the ball, all with just hand position. This one particular day, Damien Fleming had just finished an awesome over. He, it was in fact his debut test, and he just got a hot hat trick. He is the only Australian ever to get a hat-trick in his debut test. And um, he felt pumped. The sad thing was it wasn't in Australia and it was in New Zealand. And when you're a fast bowler and you get, you finish your over, you get sent down to what's called fine leg or third man, either or. And the reason for that is you don't usually get to run around too much down there. And so Damien Fleming got sent down to fine leg. And while he was down there, it just so happens that every fine leg position in world cricket is also where the most drunkard people are in the crowd. So Damien Fleming went down, stood in his spot, and was starting to cop it from the Kiwis behind him. Now, they had the usual sort of cricket stuff, which isn't church appropriate. It's pretty much just saying he's a loser, but a bit rougher. And... He decided, all right, I'm going to give a bit back. And it just so happens that the New Zealand captain was Stephen Fleming. And so whenever they said, Fleming, you're a loser, he goes, that's not a nice way to talk about your captain, and gave it back to him. There was this one bloke in particular that was starting to get on his nerves. And he walks down to the edge of the cricket field, and in New Zealand they mustn't have fences. I don't know what the go is there. Anyway. But... um. He walks down to the edge of the field with a camera and says, Oh, Flem, can I get a photo? 
Flem goes, yeah, no worries. And the guy hands him the camera and then proceeds to put his arm around two birds that were beside him and gets Flem to take a photo. So Damien Fleming thought, right, that's a good way to get my you know, image up in New Zealand. So he took the photo, hands back the camera, and away they went for the rest of the game. Three years later, Australia's back in New Zealand and Flem's in the bar and he's doing what Australian cricketers do well, and that's having a drink. And this bloke runs up to him with a thick Kiwi accent and says, Flim, I'm glad I found you. And Damien Fleming goes, what? You're a Kiwi, go away, type thing. And um, the guy goes, do you remember me? And, and Flem goes, nah. And then he says, well, back in the series of, I can't remember the year, but back in the series of that, you took a photo for me. And then he pulled the photo out. And I like Damien Fleming, he's got a bit of a sense of humour. So the guy's posing with the two girls, and this is the photo that Flem took. <laughs> Gotta love it. Gotta love Australian sense of humour, it's brilliant. Um, I've recently finished reading his book called Biology, and um, that's where that story's from. And it just goes to prove that when someone's a fan of something, they, they are interested in the topic and they'll, they'll move around with it but they won't continue on too far. If you were to be asked to recite a Bible text, obviously from the Bible, which one comes to mind? Which one is the most quoted Bible text of all time? John 3.16. If, let's see if we can go. I've got the old Bible there just in case technology fails me. That's not it. Technology is fake. John 3, it is. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Now this text, it is the most quoted text, as I said before, it is the most quoted text out of the Bible of all time. Why shouldn't it be? It's fantastic. Look at it. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son. So we've got God's love to start with. He loved us so much that he gave us his one and only son. And if you only believe in him, you won't perish, but you'll also get life. And not just normal life, you'll get eternal life. It's an awesome text. I don't know why, but um, it's on movies and it's everywhere around the place that you see people at football games, particularly in the States, holding up the Bible text on a hunk of cardboard that they've ripped out of someone's box or boxes, moving boxes, and it says John 3.16. And I don't understand why they're doing it. Like, it might be just some way of reaching out to people. But something in my head says, well, you wouldn't put all the Bible texts on a cardboard box and hold them up at a football game. And so I continued reading throughout, um, throughout the Bible, and I found this verse. Luke 9.23, and he said to all, if anyone comes after me or would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. I haven't seen that one at any football games recently or on the, any movies recently. This would not be a very good slogan for Christianity. This text would not sell too many products for Christianity. We've got John 3.16, God so loved the world, he gave his only son. And then you've got, and he said to all, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, 
Take up his cross and follow me. And this is the text we're going to look at a bit today. Last week, Neil would have talked to you about four kinds of people. People that don't believe, people that don't care. You've got people that are fans, they just go from place to place. And then you've got followers who are fully engaged with Christ. And then he would have defined the relationship and left you at a point where you should have been thinking along the lines of, what's, am I a fan or am I a follower? This is a con- continuation of that. John 3.16 focuses on believing. Luke 9.23 focuses more on following. The two go hand in hand together. You can't really have one and be a follower. You need both of them for it to work properly. A few weeks ago, um, we started talking about Matthew and, and then the following week we talked about Peter. They're all part of this series of not a fan. And the thing about Matthew in particular was the word Matthew or the name Matthew really means Levi. If your name was Levi, you were destined to become a priest in Jewish culture. You were destined to become a pastor. You were destined to become a spiritual leader of a community. And the thing about Matthew was his family was extremely disappointed with him because he didn't get picked up. Matthew would have gone through a stringent process of becoming a priest or a pastor or spiritual leader. He would have put application forms in, but he got rejected. As soon as he got rejected, his family were extremely disappointed with him. I want to flick back to Luke 9. And we're going to focus on, if anyone. Now, From that point, Matthew in his life decided not to follow God. He decided to follow himself and become a tax collector. Now, tax collectors, as um, those of you that were here will know, he was lower than low, almost scum type low, and no one liked him whatsoever. But then something interesting happened. Jesus rocked up to him and said, hey, mate, come follow me. Now, the interesting fact is that's exactly what a rabbi does. A rabbi in the New Testament, a rabbi has a class of students called the Talmidim. And what they do is they walk around and follow the rabbi so close that the dust from the rabbi's sandals gets upon them. And they find that to be a privilege. Now, Matthew, if he had succeeded in becoming a priest or a pastor, a spiritual leader, if Matthew had succeeded in that, he would have had his own rabbi to follow around. And the reason why Matthew didn't get picked up was because he wasn't good enough. You see, your students showed the rest of the world how good you were as a spiritual leader. And so Matthew was classed not good enough. Now, the other strange thing with this scenario of Jesus coming up to Matthew and saying, hey, mate, come follow me, is that no spiritual leader of that time would have stooped to that level. They would not have humbled themselves 
to come up to a humble tax collector and say, hey mate, come follow me. The other thing that the group of disciples following a rabbi would do would be constantly memorising the text, which happened to be the first five books of the Old Testament. And, and the, the spiritual leader of the time would ask his students, how many times does the word Lord, Saviour, appear in the book of Leviticus in chapter 11? And they'd be able to answer it like that. Matthew didn't have any of those skills. And so here we have Matthew becoming a disciple with no qualification whatsoever. Jesus did the same thing to Peter and the rest of the disciples. And the thing about it is once they said, yes, I want to follow, they didn't become perfect instantly. It it wasn't a sort of, right, I'm here to follow, I'm perfect, I am that guy's disciple. It was a process. And the process came from God's grace. There are plenty of days that I find myself waking up and just going, I'm a bit of a fan. All the time I'm waking up going, I'm a bit of a fan. But exactly the same process happens. Jesus invites us every day. Every single day he invites us to follow him. And in Luke 9.23 it says, If anyone, anyone, tax collectors, fishermen, women of the night, all that kind of stuff, all came to follow him. doesn't matter what your, your past is, anyone can follow. If you're in prison, you can follow. If, you, if you're recently divorced, you can follow. If you're an alcoholic, you can follow. Pothead, addict, hypocrite, anyone, follow Jesus and we can follow him again today. turns out that this invitation, as I've been saying, is anyone. Anyone me and anyone you. doesn't matter what your history is. It's pretty cool. Second part of the test I'd like to have a look at is come after me. The best way to illustrate this would be the pursuit of love. The pursuit of love, come after me. In the first couple of grades of school, you see, you see a girl on the other side. Well, sorry girls, but I'm a male, so I'm going to talk in that way. You see a girl on the other side of the room and you go, oh, that's gross. Disney tells us that we're going to boy meets girl and it's all going to be all right but in years one and two nah it's gross they've got cooties they're going to wipe them on us and then we're going to die or something i don't know i don't understand how it works but at some point as you get older something changes in the male mind sorry once again something changes in the male mind to hmm it's yeah okay starting to take notice but it, we don't know what to do with that notice. And so we decide we have to mortally wound them. We decide that we need to chase them. We need to have war with them, pretty much. So picture this, if you will. And we're in the perfect scenario for it because we're out of school. There's a boy. Sees a beauty walking across on the other side of the room. And he looks at her and goes, She's amazing. She's my day, she is my night. She is my flower, I must prove my love to her. I must have her to hold forever. So with all my might and all my soul and all my heart, 
I will throw this rock at her. And if she survives, we will be wed. Go rock, hit your mark. It's just like that. And that's the best way I can describe it. And then something else changes and movies start to happen. Um, The Notebook. Um, I am proud to say that even uh, almost married two two and a half years, something like that. Two and a half (laughs) years. Whoops. Um, Almost married two and a half years. And the dating period before that and all that kind of... I still haven't seen The Notebook. Come on. Thank you. And the way I've gotten around it, every, every time we go on a holiday... Um, I pack the notebook, so I get brownie points for that, but I pack it deep into a bag, and so it never peers its head up, and there's all these DVDs on top of it, so I've gotten around not watching the notebook, which I've probably just destroyed by telling that story here. Anyway, we go into another phase where it turns into, yep, she's the one. And then it moves on further into marriage and all that. But that final pursuit is a very interesting one. The final pursuit, you'll do absolutely anything you want, well, not anything you want, but anything they want, for them to notice you and for them to build a relationship with you. And the final pursuit is what Jesus is talking about here in Luke 9. Come after me, pursue me. I want you to spend as much time as you do looking out for that person. I want you to spend as much time as you do obsessing about that person with me. Come after me. Matthew thirteen forty four, And it's talking about the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found covered up then in his joy goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So this bloke's gone out digging in a paddock somewhere and he's uncovered this treasure. And then he decides to go home, sell absolutely everything. He's devoted to the field. He sells his house, his car, all other accessories that he has just to go out and buy this field because the treasure that is buried in that field is totally awesome. It is priceless. And it's exactly the same as what Jesus is saying when he says, come after me. Once you've found me, I want you to pursue me. I want you to sell all you have and come after me. We have the next section of the text, which says, deny yourself. And the classic Bible story about denying yourself is the rich young ruler. So here we go. And behold, a man came up to him, Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good, and if you would enter life, keep my commandments. So it's quite simple. Jesus is just saying, Mate, you have to keep the commandments. It's a long way to say it, but anyway... We'll move on. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honour your father and your mother and you shall love your neighbour as yourself. It's 
pretty good so far. And the rich young ruler said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And he finishes up with this. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. Now, a lot of people focus on the monetary value that the rich young ruler was going to give up. But it's more than that. The rich young ruler was going to give up a lifestyle that the money and everything brought. The rich young ruler went away sorrowful because he didn't want to give up a lifestyle. The rich young ruler was going to become a slave if he did what Jesus said. It's a foreign concept. To become a slave for Jesus. He he was going to give all that he had to go and serve a master, which was Jesus. And that disappointed the rich young ruler. Sure, it would have been disappointing for the rich young ruler to lose all his possessions and all that kind of stuff. But he didn't want to become a slave with Christ. And the final section of Luke 29, uh, Luke 9, 23, sorry. I knew it wasn't right. Nope. There it is. Is take up your cross. It's a big invitation for us to take up our cross. But the, the more concerning point of the text is take up your cross daily. See, um, last year at Easter time, actually, coming up, I was in Hong Kong. Um, I had a grump, group of students there, and I was grumpy by the end of it, but I had a group of students there. And um, we, we did what, and they're all girls, and <laughs> shopping. Do I need to say more? They're all girls, and we're in the shopping capital of the world, and, and they're shopping. Um, Barry Bidmead, who is the guy on the other side of the water that organised the trip, he and I were the only gents there. And um, we just spent days just trailing these girls through the markets. It was ridiculous. <laughs> and um, every, oh. I don't know how much money they had, but they just kept on spending, buying the most ridiculous things. Um, as, as some of you know who have been to Hong Kong, you can buy absolutely everything. Um, if you've got a 20-year-old Commodore 64 computer, you can still buy the X key from the keyboard and stuff like that. It's just ridiculous, but these girls found knickknacks in absolutely every shop they went into. Um, got a bit sidetracked there. That's obviously on my heart. Um, <laughs> so... Wow, we're in Hong Kong and we're just about to leave. And the, the last thing, the last thing that I always do every time I travel, and it's a little tip I picked up from Murray, is that you try and get rid of anything small in your wallet. So any coins, any small notes, all that kind of You try and get rid of it. And so I rock up to airport um, news agents and stuff to buy a magazine that costs $2 Australian and I'm paying for it in... Um, one cent pieces type stuff just to try and get rid of the shrapnel out of my wallet, I had shrapnel at the best of times and that scenario there is exactly the same as what Jesus is saying here, that we take up your cross daily 
Because a lot of people think, and don't get me wrong, the salvation moment that someone has in their life is absolutely awesome, and I don't want to take away from that. But it's like paying for a hundred something that's worth a hundred dollars with a hundred dollar note. Jesus is going, nah, don't pay for it like that. I want you to pay for it in five cent pieces. I want you to take up five cent pieces daily and pay for your thing. It's like taking out a loan, you pay for it slowly. Salvation, yeah, as I said, I don't want to take away from that immediate salvation moment where someone goes, yes, I'm one for Christ. But it's not just about that moment, it's about a journey that keeps on going. It's about paying for it in five cent pieces. Um, I couldn't think of a better way, or if I couldn't illustrate this enough, I found a YouTube clip, so let's watch this. When I was in college, it didn't really matter who I talked to about Jesus. Almost everyone seemed pretty open or pretty okay with, you know, chatting about his grace, his forgiveness, and his love. But I remember almost everyone, like clockwork, would start to get upset and kind of have this righteous anger whenever I would bring up those passages where Jesus asks for everything. He says, you need to give up your life. You need to die to self. You need to love me more than your mom and your dad. And there was almost kind of this how dare he attitude that would boil up when I would chat with people about that. And I remember perfectly being understand, I would understand it and say that totally makes sense. But the more I thought about it, I started to realize how come he's the only one we get mad at that asks that, right? We're perfectly fine with everything else in our life asking for us, asking everything from us and asking us to sacrifice for. It's like, how many marriages have we seen where the father is totally willing to give up everything? The relationship with the kids, the relationship with the wife, maybe his friends at church, because he wants to have an adulterous relationship. Or how many 16-year-old teenage girls do we know who are willing to sacrifice their bodies, their minds, their emotions, their friends for a boyfriend? How many people do we know that are willing to sacrifice everything on the altar of their job? And so the truth that I started to realize is, it's not that we should get mad at Jesus for asking thing, asking everything from us. It's actually that everything does that. There's one thing in every single one of our lives that demands everything from us. It says, I want all of you. And what's unique is that it's not that Jesus is unique in asking everything for us, but Jesus is unique in that he actually gives up everything for us first. Jesus is the only one out of lust anger, adultery, relationships, reputation, power, sex. He's the only one out of all those things that actually says, I'm going to give you everything I have to compel you to give everything up for me. See, the truth is, all those other things slap a spiked leash on us and drag us around the corridors of life, forcing us as a slave to do what they say. And they always overpromise and underdeliver. But Jesus says, I'm only demanding your life because I gave you my life. I'm only demanding your obedience because I served you first. And when you understand that, when you see that the cross is the ultimate compelling love pulling you in, you realize that he's better than every single thing you've been pursuing in this life. Every single thing you've been pursuing in this life. In culture, we've made the cross symbol into a necklace, we've made it in just an ornament. But back in Jesus' time, the cross represented shame. It was the most horrific way to die. It represented torture. It, 
the Romans couldn't think of another way to kill someone that would inflict so much more pain. And so when, when Luke writes here that take up your cross daily, it may hurt. When Luke writes here, when you, when you take up your cross daily, you may feel bad about it. But the challenge is still there. And then it finishes, the text finishes with take up your cross and then the invitation, the same invitation that Jesus gave to Matthew, the same invitation that Jesus gave to Peter is exactly the same invitation for us today. Accept the invite and follow me. Let's pray. Father God, we just ask a special blessing on this whole refreshed church. And Lord, we just pray that you, you open up our eyes and our hearts and help us to see the invitation. Help us to RSVP, yes, and, and the soon, sooner the better. But Lord, help us not to, once it's done, it's done. Help us to pay for it in five cent pieces. We thank you lots, Lord. We can't wait to see you in your name. Amen.